Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a millionaire's tax, driver's licenses for undocumented drivers, dental insurance costs, and alcohol sales. Those are the issues framing the four ballot questions for the upcoming November 8th election. And as is typical of ballot questions, it takes more than one read to decipher the details and understand what's at stake. Ballot question number three focuses on alcohol sales across the state. Would a new law give an unfair advantage to grocery and convenience stores or be a big boon for big liquor retailers? We're breaking down the multiple parts of ballot question number three and the meaning of a yes or no vote. Later in the show, you may know about Patti LaBelle's pie, but now a lot of celebrities are stirring it up in the kitchen. I want ideas. You know, I want slightly unexpected flavor combinations, or I want something that is really true to that person. I'm like shooting dice now. Seven. <laughs> so I'm from New Mexico, and we're going to be making green chili chicken enchilada pot. I don't eat a lot of vegetables, girl. You don't? No. We're diving into celebrity cookbooks. Are the recipes yummy or yucky? We'll be the judge. But first, joining me now, two people who know how to explain the yes and no sides of the question. Soraya Wintersmith, political reporter for the TV, radio, and digital GBH newsroom. Hello, Soraya. Hi, Callie. Also with me, Mike Dean, co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. Welcome back, Mike. Great to be back on GBH, Kelly. I'm so glad to have both of you because I do not understand <laughs> this question. So I'm just going to, I want to start just in an overarching way, have each of you weigh in on first, what would a yes vote do? And then what would a no vote do? And then let's break down all the pieces. All right, Mike, as a guest, I'm going to let you start. <laughs> Well, it's a relatively simple uh, yes or no, as these ballot questions are, but you kind of have to start with what the current status quo is when it comes to beer and wine sales in uh, convenience stores, grocery stores, all sorts of other you know, chain stores. So a yes vote on this would expand the number of beer and wine licenses that a chain could hold from the current nine up to 12 next year, 15 a few years after that, and then a maximum of 18 by uh, the 2031. Um, so it is going to allow places like Cumberland Farms, Stop and Shop, uh, even you know Target or Walmart or other big box stores to carry more beer and wine. I'm sure listeners are familiar with uh, a few of those stores that can carry it. You know, Trader Joe's uh, will carry their famous two buck chuck wine, but not every location does. This would allow places to carry some more. And when, especially when you're getting into places like convenience stores, gas stations, things like that, it could become much more readily available. Mm -hmm. Okay, Saraya, well, why don't you add something? 
Uh, so the other thing that it would do is limit the number of licenses that allow folks to sell spirits to seven. So going from nine to 18, the total number of licenses that you can have, if I'm a retailer and I have a chain of stores and I want to sell hard liquor at stores, I can do that at up to seven of my locations. And that's assuming that I have the maximum number of licenses. Okay. All right. No vote, Mike. What does a no vote do? <laughs> no vote would keep things the way they are, uh, which is limiting them to nine locations and not expanding them the way that they've been. Um, it, it's a little more complicated than that because uh, this ballot question is actually being put forward by some of those package stores, the liquor lobby, so to speak, the mom and pop liquor stores, the local stores that probably don't want to see these big box chains expand that way. It's kind of almost an olive branch or a compromise that they're putting forward to say, look, stop trying to change the law in the legislature. Uh, stop any further ballot questions that you might do to make that limit go even higher and higher and higher. Let's settle it now uh, at that lower number and just let it let it go. <laughs> um, so it, it's kind of an interesting thing where the people who might benefit the most from this aren't necessarily pushing it. And those that at a first glance seem like they might suffer the most by expanding these liquor licenses, they're actually the ones behind it. Hmm. Soraya. I will just add to your earlier reading about whether or not the law unfairly punishes some folks. Some of the other things that it does are uh, ban um, those automated transactions. When you go to the grocery store and you want to self-checkout, self -checkout, mm -hmm. you would not be able to do alcohol through the self-checkout if this passes. Uh, the other thing that it would do is um, change how fines are calculated, uh, particularly for retailers that sell more than alcohol. Mike, help me out. I think right now it's mm -hmm. all gross profits of alcohol, but if it changes, it will be Become, all profits. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it would be gross profits of the store itself. And so you think that's kind of where the devil may be in the details for these larger stores, because uh, if a liquor store gets dinged for, you know, selling to an underage person or you know, public consumption in the parking lot, something like that, it would be, uh, the fine would be based on the sales of that store, uh, the alcohol sales, which is all the sales they have in a mm -hmm. liquor store. If that happens at a Target, or if that happens at a stop and shop, mm -hmm. it's going to be the gross profits of the entire store is what that fine is based on, not just the liquor sales. So uh, relatively speaking, those bigger chains that sell more than alcohol who are going to stand to benefit from this expansion will be uh, far heavier penalized under this new rule if it goes through. And the only other thing that I'll add is just for me, the most important part of this, I mean, I have a Massachusetts license now, but uh, as a transplant, when I first arrived, I had a DC license. And if you are like me and you've gone to the grocery store where there's a large selection of wine and you want to make your dinner and get something to go with it, and you have your out-of-state license and you've been turned away because you can't purchase alcohol with an out-of-state license, this law would make that out-of-state license an acceptable form of identification and proof of age if you want to purchase. May I ask why? I understand Massachusetts, is that Massachusetts the only state that currently denies out-of-state? Is that right? And Soraya, and if so, why do they do that? I mean, what's the advantage for Massachusetts? I have absolutely no idea whether or not Massachusetts is the only one that does it. I would 
think that it would sort of tamp down on fake transactions oh, I see. because you okay. wouldn't want people to be responsible for knowing what a California license looks like and a uh, DC license uh-huh. and all that stuff. And there's a lot of students here. Um, you know, right. we get wily when we're in our 20s. Yeah. <laughs> so the advantage then of changing that is that there's more people to sell to. I mean, just, you know, why are they saying, well, let's change that? I uh-huh. would be able to, I, I, I would be able to purchase my alcohol mm-hmm. without having to switch my license from a DC one to a Massachusetts one. And presumably if someone is visiting, you know, like you get an Airbnb, you're not going to change your whole right. license over if you're just coming for a little while, but you may want to buy some liquor or some wine. Gotcha. I'm Callie Crossley and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm joined by Soraya Wintersmith of the GBH Newsroom and Mike Dean of the Boston Axios Newsletter. We're dissecting ballot question number three, which focuses on alcohol sales. So except with perhaps that exception, Soraya and Mike, I see how some of the large liquor retailers may benefit. I can see maybe how some of the grocery stores and convenience stores could benefit or be harmed. But I am trying to figure out where is the consumer benefiting on either side of this. And so far, the only thing that either of you said is that if somebody's coming from out of state, they can now get their license accepted. That seems to be the only thing that Mm. is consumer friendly. The other parts, I don't get. I think you go ahead, Mike. (laughs) Thank you, Samira. Um, I'll give you kind of both sides of it, uh, of, of what either side will say is the benefit for consumers, Kelly. Uh, from the liquor store, uh, you know, the existing liquor store point of view, this is going to increase the number of, you know, big box stores and grocery stores that you will be able to buy beer and wine in, um, you know, up, upwards of quite a few by the 2030s. That means that, yes, you would be able to buy that six pack on your way through uh, Shaw's or Star Market or something like that. Uh, from the other side of it, uh, it means that, you know, the no side, so to speak, would be that because they want to go further or they may want to go further down the road, uh, meaning the chains may want to go further down the road. We have companies like Total Wine who are now mm. establishing locations in Massachusetts. Right now, they're limited by how many licenses they can have, just like any other chain store. They are a big force. They are a big, you know, money-making corporation that is expanding pretty rapidly in this area. They could very well want to get the legislature to rewrite those rules in the future, maybe even throw that that limit out the window or double or triple it, you know, years down the road so they can keep building more and more and more. Um, so that would certainly, from a consumer standpoint, make uh, liquor, you know, wine and liquor and, and beer far more accessible um, if it got to the point where, like in other states, you can get beer and wine in practically every gas station practically every convenience store. That would have a huge impact on um, how consumers acquire uh, beer and wine, especially around Massachusetts. Okay, so that sounds like, sorry, I'm going to let you, because I'm completely still tangled up here. That sounds like I'm voting on maybe something might happen in the future and what could be now. I, I mean, that's what it sounds like, what you just said, Mike. Is that what it, Am I? Well, there'll be a sm- there'll be a small change in the immediate, you know, over the next few years. This, you know, goes up and up and up uh, between 2023 and 2030. It will increase the number of licenses. So, a few more uh, convenience stores will start selling beer and wine. A few more grocery stores will start selling beer and wine over that time period. I think from the Packy's perspective too, if there is a future effort, which they say they're trying to head off, if there is a future effort to 
get rid of license limits completely and alcohol availability greatly expands because there aren't any more limits. From the PACI's perspective, that would be bad for consumers in Massachusetts because who's regulating alcohol at that point? In talking to at least one of the people from the independent association that is pushing this question, they say that it is a benefit to consumers for alcohol to still be regulated for there to be caps and licenses because otherwise we'd be like places like Louisiana where people are just <laughs> drinking and running around with alcohol everywhere and you know I got relatives in Louisiana so I know that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> Nanny it's, it's where here. consumer yeah it's where consumer benefit runs up against public safety benefit in a way. Okay. All right. Now here's a question. I want to I want to play some clips here. So I'm looking at this ballot question and you go down if you look at ba- ballot Wikipedia, uh, ballot Opedia, I guess. Um, they note that there's some other stuff going on out in Colorado. So I went to look at what's happening out there, and it sounds very familiar. So first, um, this is also on the ballot in Colorado this year, and it sounds so much like what's happening here. This is CBS's, CBS Colorado's Sean Boyd explaining. Supporters of the ballot measures say it's about convenience. Opponents say it's about greed. They say grocery stores will never offer what small liquor stores do. Thousands of varieties, employees who are experts on wine, beer, and spirits, and owners committed to their communities. And so here's this guy, a Colorado liquor store owner, David Ross. He says he just wants everybody to be on an equal playing field. I just want all the big box retailers, the local uh, liquor stores, I want us all to be on an even playing field so we have an opportunity to compete fairly. Currently today I'm allowed to have one liquor license. That's it. I can have my one little store, Big Fella Wine and Liquor. I'm not allowed to have two. All right, so is this some kind of national playbook that's going on and Massachusetts is just one of many states trying to do the same thing? Absolutely. You know, it, it goes back to stores like Total Wine and those um, certainly those chains. Even closer to home, though, we had a, um, a ballot question that never quite got off the ground to make an expansion like this that was being put up by the Cumberland Farms Company. Um, you can definitely see what they would have to benefit from putting more beer and wine into convenience and gas stations and stores like that. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of national companies who are going into this. Total Wine is the one that comes to mind. But um, also, you know, your, your Targets, your Walmarts, you know, super centers of the world. And then you have the kind of closer to home grocery, like regional grocery chains that operate in multiple states, you know, like your Stop and Shop and Shaw's and places like that. Um, of course, you know, attached to companies like Giant and going under different brand names in different parts of the country. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot of corporate money that's going to be pumped into this in all sorts of different states because there's it's just a gigantic profit-making industry. Hmm. Soraya? I think at first thought, the even playing field argument can be sort of confusing In my mind, as I was approaching this question, an even playing field would mean everybody's allowed to have what they want Mm. um, in terms of license availability. Um, But in thinking about what Mike just said about giant corporations like having the resources to have multiple licenses and make money, it would, if we were to get rid of licenses, make it very hard for these independent stores that have some of them, a lot of them, been in business for generations, make it really hard to sustain and still, you know, make money. Mm. 
So here's what's interesting. Well, first of all, I still don't know what I'm going to do when I go. Y'all are helping me, but I'm still confused because <laughs> I like a diver, I like the diversity. I like I don't often go to Total Wine, but I have gone there and it's been interesting. I like uh, dipping into some Trader Joe's or wherever and maybe get a couple bottles of wine or whatever. I like going to the liquor stores as I like some specialized service and specialized um, product, uh, which is likely what I'm going to find there. So I prefer just keep my diversity while y'all messing with it. And, <laughs> and, I, and yeah. I just, I know there's money on the table. There's a lot of money on the table. And I just want to bring this up. So that's my personal response. Here's something else. Um, it says that the cities and towns across Massachusetts would still have the power to limit the volume of liquor licenses in their individual jurisdictions. So now I guess this gets back to what you were saying a little bit, uh, Saray. It sounds like the wild, wild west because this thing passes or doesn't, uh, wherever, and and now the cities and towns can also have some power in this. So is it a, is there a scenario I could imagine where there's five total wines that have nine licenses or whatever, and maybe nothing else, or maybe uh, no grocery stores have. What happens there? <laughs> this is the thing about whether or not this question passes. It's that you could potentially see expansion because you're right. Ultimately, municipalities, so cities and towns, will have the final say about who gets what and where because there are local caps. And in the same way with our um, marijuana stores, you know, got to be spaced out and in certain places. So it's it's not guaranteed that your favorite grocery store would be able to then sell hard liquor. Um, it depends on whatever the local rules are. Hmm. Mike, you want to add anything to that? No, I, it, to yeah, complicate it even more for you, Kelly, and just kind of go <laughs> oh, back God. to that initial um, reverse compromise in a way that this is being portrayed or at least being put forward is that this is a move from those local liquor stores to say, okay, we'll give you a handful of additional licenses, but that's where it stops. That's where it ends. Mm -hmm. um, that's why you're seeing, a, this is, this is asking voters to approve a limited expansion so that a much larger expansion doesn't come into play for at least, you know, a decade or generation or so. And even though there's no formal opposition, I think if you talk to folks who do not like question three, they will tell you that this would kind of lock in the regulations as it is, mm -hmm. um, because we typically see people back away from issues once you know, they've come up in a ballot question or the legislature has done something, then you see them kind of dust their hands off and back away from the issue and say, we've already addressed that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I was going to bring up the legislature because they're really quite well known for the ballot question passes <laughs> and then they don't do anything and then nothing happens. So it's like nothing ever happened. There was no ballot question, right? I mean, we've seen this a few times. Mike? <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, we're seeing a ballot question everyone forgot about end up in a whole bunch of tax rebates for everybody. So there is precedent that they, these do these laws do stick. But I think the most relevant one here is the marijuana law that passed. Uh, voters said, yes, we want to legalize yeah. marijuana sales. And the legislature rewrote the whole thing wholesale. Um, just, you know, come, started from scratch, more or less. They, they took what the voters wanted, the intent of the voters, and then completely redid all the bureaucracy and uh, red tape and the regulations that went into it. So absolutely, the, the legislature can ignore, re rewrite, or enforce really anything that they want when it comes to ballot measures. So this could 
we could be here again, or they could, or it could be something totally different the next time we have a conversation about it. Oh yeah, Total Wine or, or some other. I don't want to blame them completely, but you know, some big corporate entity uh, with a lot of money wants to start lobbying the legislature to eliminate any kind of uh, license limits entirely. With you know, five years from now, that could absolutely happen. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Soraya Wintersmith of the GBH Newsroom and Mike Dean of the Boston Axios Newsletter. We're dissecting ballot question number three, which focuses on alcohol sales. So here's where I think uh, somebody in the in the, in the CBS Colorado piece said, you know, this is about greed, um, because the two seems to be safety questions, one about the, the out-of-town uh, driver's licenses, and then we didn't we hadn't talked about you can't self-check out with alcohol, which I asked my lovely producer, Kelly, why is I don't understand that? <laughs> and she explained to me that in her youth, her wayward youth, you could, <laughs> you could check out something else instead of the liquor if you were underage. So, you know, I'm such a Pollyanna, and did, I did not understand that. So I'm assuming that that is why that is a part of this measure. But you could take those two, and those would really be consumer safety issues and, you know, get a good response from the rest yep. of us, because we have, you know, intimate familiarity with that. That makes sense to us, but it's now tied up with this other mess. So right. obviously they're trying to get our attention to say, see, we can give you some safety tips if you just vote for this other stuff. Am I right? It's Mike? much more palatable. <laughs> yes, I think it's because it comes from the liquor store lobby, uh, you know, the mom and pops that we're all familiar with. They take a lot of pride and they feel very strongly about the safety side of what they do and um, this, the, you know, not selling to minors, making sure that everyone's ID gets checked. They have no faith in supermarket checkouts to be as, you know, carry that level of scrutiny when it comes to alcohol sales. They want to protect what they have. Um, which is a, a business that is very well regulated, but also very well run under those regulations from their perspective. Um, and they think that they have the, the trained staff, the knowledgeable staff, mm. the safety uh, element all built in there already. And they don't want to see grocery stores, you know, really start letting six packs slip under the under the scanner, so mm. to speak, like mm. you were describing before. It would also remove the excuse, right, if I am a grocery store and this fine structure changes and now I have to worry about paying more in fines if someone is caught um, with alcohol that they purchased from my store and they're underage. If we don't have those automated checkouts, what excuse do I have for my employees who... Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. allowed someone to walk out of the store. If it's face-to-face, -face, then someone has to be responsible for having checked the ID mm -hmm. and looked at the person and assessed that they were old enough to buy alcohol. And there's no excuse. It removes the excuse. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you, I always get asked, wherever the grocery stores, they seem to look at me even more closely. I'm just saying right now, that's generally the situation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but it's a personal thing. I don't know. All right. So from the, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> oh, no, I was gonna say, there's plenty of new technology in play here, too. Cash registers that physically won't allow you to sell alcohol, won't oh. let the sale go through unless you scan a valid license. That's something you know, Roach Brothers uh, downtown Boston has that. doesn't matter. You could be, you know, a 95-year-old you know, person coming in there with a bottle of wine. They're going to demand your license because the register simply won't let the sale go through without it. Gotcha. 
Um, As an aging woman, you can have my license all day, every day. Like, check me, please. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just going to say black don't crack, so (laughs) they have to check me because my youthful appearance may (laughs) lead them astray. But I digress. (laughs) Let me me ask this question. What's your sense, each of you, of whether or not this is going to pass? I feel like the Boston Globe just did a piece where they informally assessed whether or not folks would like to vote yes. And it seems like... In reading that piece, consumers would find it more convenient. I think there's a line in the story that says, instead of having to walk five blocks, I would just have to walk one to go and get my favorite liquor. Mm. What's your sense, Mike? Uh, Yeah, I I would say that on first blush, it does seem like the consumer benefit is pretty clear. It it will be a limited expansion of this, and I'll be able to, you know, maybe my Trader Joe's will have wine instead of having to go to the next town over's Trader Joe's to get wine. That kind of thing is pretty clear. And the other side, it doesn't, you know, monumentally change the way beer, wine, and liquor are sold in Massachusetts because it's such a limited expansion. Um, So people might say, okay, let's do this smaller expansion now, uh, but I don't want to see, you know, things change too, too much. So it could very well stand a chance of passing. Yeah, well, it seems to me that if you don't want to see things change too, too much, just say no and then make them go back to the drawing board and do something else. That's a little bit more in point. If it could be more drastic, though. Well, that's true. Or it could not be, given that it took this long to you know, get to <laughs> <Yeah>. this point. <laughs> um, one last question, which might not be appropriate here. This does not apply to restaurants. Um, you know, there, we have such a fraught history in this state in greater Boston, certainly with liquor licenses and... Um, certainly persons of color being able to get them. Is there any race issue here in this, or this is, no. Um, let, let me know if there's if there's something I'm missing with regard to that, because it certainly is when we talk start talking about restaurant liquor licenses. I will say the folks at Tufts uh, Tisch School, when they did an analysis of this question, as they do to try and help voters understand the impact I think they did recommend that the legislature clarify whether or not this would apply to restaurants because it's unclear in the text. Mm, Mike? Um, I haven't heard that specifically. Uh, Certainly there are issues surrounding um, citing of of liquor stores, you know, Mm -hmm. where they are and what neighborhood and and, uh, how many and, you know, uh, things like that. I haven't heard that here. it will be interesting to see if that consumer aspect does it, you know, matter to some of those bigger grocery stores. You could see uh, maybe a smaller grocery chain or maybe, you know, an independent grocery chain really benefiting from this kind of thing, uh, especially if they're dealing with, um, you know, a, a more niche kind of um, selection of beer and wine. Well, I have to say, we only have four ballot questions. Each of them seem to be particularly confusing this year. Go around. Maybe it's just me. Um, this is certainly right up there with them. So I'm, I'll am i be very curious to see what the voters decide on November 8th. But in the meantime, I thank both of you for deconstructing the yes and the no of ballot question number three. Oh, great to be with you, Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Happy to do it. Saraya Wintersmith is a political reporter for the TV, radio, and digital GBH newsroom. And Mike Dean is a co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. And both of them are great political reporters. Coming up, celebrities. These days, a bunch of them have their fingers in every pot, literally. They are dishing up signature recipes in best-selling cookbooks. But are these recipes any good? Under the Radar's food contributor, Amy Traverso, and I taste and tell. That's next. 
This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Sick of this. Get those Just Eat fools on the line for me. We're gonna do this doggy style. Did somebody say Just Eat? Me, get delivery like a G. See, hungry dogs gotta eat. I get mines every day, every week. Chicken wings to the crib. I'm sitting in. Burger in the low low. Hope they put the This is up. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. You're listening to celebrity rapper Snoop Dogg. Rapping is his day job, but like so many other multi-hyphenated entertainers, he has a lot of other stuff on his plate. Matt Damon is really into crypto, Kylie Jenner has a makeup line, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson has his own brand of tequila. And now many celebrities have turned their cooking passion into a money-making endeavor. That includes actors Reese Witherspoon. Why is it that Tracy Marcinko's curls were ruined when she got hosed down? Because they got wet? Exactly. Because isn't it the first cardinal rule of perm maintenance that you're forbidden to wet your hair for at least 24 hours after getting a perm at the risk of deactivating the ammonium thyglocolate? Jesse Tyler Ferguson. When you and I skated together, you know, you weren't the mean older sister and I wasn't the, the clingy little brother. We were, we were a team. And you know, let's face it, we've kind of grown apart in the past few years. Stanley Tucci. This is not just a magazine. This is a shining beacon of hope for, let's say, a young boy growing up in Rhode Island with six brothers pretending to go to soccer practice when he was really going to sewing class. Danny Trejo? You think I want to babysit my brother the rest of my life? Watch out for Gregorio. Take care of Gregorio. Make sure Gregorio knows right from wrong. Not anymore. Machete's not responsible for nobody but Machete. And even basketball icon Shaquille O'Neal. All of them have authored cookbooks. I'm joined by Amy Traverso, Under the Radar's food contributor, to discuss which of these authors is a foodie and who should hang up their apron. Amy is, as you know, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook, and a general lover of food. Hello again, Amy. Hey, Callie. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you because uh, this will be fun. Now, we're going to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, we are. <laughs> um, I first want to set a few credentials in case people are saying, what do you know about this? Of course, you know Amy is uh, a, a food expert, but you should also know she the, the cookbook author part of her expertise comes into play here. So what do you look for as a person who's written cookbooks mm -hmm. and has reviewed many cookbooks? Um, for me, what a, a cookbook um, has to be realistic about the amount of time I have in a given day to cook. Um, and I want it to be clear. I wanted to tell me clearly, this is an easy weekday recipe, or this is a project recipe, you know, that you do on the weekends and to just 
know what each recipe is and not assume that we all have infinite time for anything. Um, I want ideas, you know, I want slightly unexpected flavor combinations, or I want something that is really true to that person. You know, Stanley Tucci, you know, his TV show uh, where he's touring Italy and getting all these authentic recipes, that's fine. Those aren't new recipes, but, you know, I want him to evoke and make me feel like I'm there. So, so, you know, it doesn't always have to be new, new, new. And I want the recipes to be really well-written. Um, I want there to be some good storytelling and I want the recipes to be clear, to tell me, you know, uh, ideally times for how long I should be doing something to certainly be in the right order, to, um, to remind me of things like preheating the oven and which rack to set, you know, do I want to put this in the middle of the oven? Do I want it, does it need to be in the top or the bottom? To me, those details are a sign of a really good recipe writer. Got it. Um, now, what's my credential? I have more than 100 cookbooks. I'm a foodie and I know what tastes good. Plus, I'm a really good cook. So that those are my credentials I, <laughs> for this conversation. <laughs> I co-sign your credentials. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to make one distinction as we dive in, and that is there are celebrities who write cookbooks. Those are the people we're talking about because they do other things. There are also celebrity chefs. We are not talking about celebrity chefs like the, um, uh, you know, Gaffieri's or the or the Gordon Ramsay's or um, Bobby uh, Tiffany Derry's or Bobby Flay, any of those people. They uh, write cookbooks, write recipes, cook for a living, and then they have cookbooks, and so they become celebrity sh chef cookbooks. These are people who, this is not their normal thing. They just like food, or perhaps they've become quite good at it. So here we go. We're going to start with Snoop Dogg's book, <laughs> uh, only because people are going to be surprised to know it has showed up on every celebrity cookbook best of list. I am shocked by this, Amy. The book is called Snoop Dogg from Crook to Cook, <laughs> which makes sense. Anybody knows anything about Snoop Dogg? He had a little shady history before while he was rapping, and he's turned into this brand machine now. He's amazing. I tell you, um, probably best known for hanging out with Martha Stewart, who is a celebrity chef. Really, so for you, both of them. I know. Before you uh, weigh in on Snoop Dogg's from uh, Crook to Cook cookbook, let's take a listen to Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart make the laid-back cocktail on Ellen in 2016. They were promoting their new sh cooking show. Okay, now shake. This is all your bling, Martha. It is. Yeah, Snoop has his bling around his neck, you know, and I have my bling in the kitchen. This is yeah. bling, that's bling. Oh, I'm like shooting dice now. Seven. <laughs> <laughs> Once you get it nicely mm. mixed, you take the top and put it back over there. So there they are, two together. Um, an odd couple if you ever heard one. What do you think about this cookbook? You know, I love this cookbook. <laughs> it's not a cookbook that I would refer to often, but... Snoop is so confident in himself and he knows his brand so well. So I started laughing when I opened the book and I saw his pantry because cookbook pantry sections of most cookbooks are 
pretty pretentious, you know. Um, I really recommend that you keep a box of fleur de sel for sprinkling <laughs> over steaks. And I try to use the best Banyuls vinegar. And his, he's got a photo of himself standing in front of his pantry. There are a box of instant mac and cheese. He's got his hot sauce. He's got Pop-Tarts. He's got sugar cereal, Twizzlers, <laughs> Aunt Jemima syrup, and, you know, cayenne pepper. I mean, this guy is not trying to be, he's not trying to impress anybody. He is giving you the authentic man. And, you know, uh, oddly, that show that he and Martha Stewart did, did very well. What did you, you made something from the cookbook. So talk about that. Oh my God. I made honestly the most delicious mac and cheese I think I've ever had. Really? It, there is no form of butter fat or dairy fat that is not present in this. I mean, I, I was having a heart attack while I was making it, let alone eating it. It has used its whole milk, cream, sour cream, five cups of cheddar cheese and butter. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, oh my God, is it good? I'm going to bring you over some after we're done talking. Um, you know, it, it, you make this ultra creamy and the seasonings are great. Like okay. there's garlic powder, salt, pepper, cayenne pepper, Worcestershire sauce and a lot of mustard powder. It works really well with all that richness. And then you bake it with all this cheese on top. So it gets real like crispy and crunchy. This thing is so, so good. <laughs> he says it's based on, um, on his wife's mac and cheese, but, uh, but he did hire a recipe, uh, a recipe writer, a co-author whose name is Ryan Ford. Mm. And I have to say, Ryan really writes a good recipe. Like they're very clear. He gives you time cues. He gives you, um, you know, sensory cues. So, you know, bake until it's golden and bubbly or, you know, 25 to 30 minutes. So honestly, it checks all my boxes for well-written recipes, but you know, this is kind of like stoner food to some extent. It's like soul food is his food, but you know, the recipes have these funny names like mile high omelet. Ha -ha. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be his whole thing. It's interesting yeah. because the best mac and cheese from a celebrity that I have ever eaten is Patty LaBelle's. Ooh, so I'm going to have to make, you know, both of these side by side. Okay. And, and, and I will say I was kind of biased against this when I was like, really? I don't think so. But, <laughs> but, but it showed up on everybody's list. Everybody yeah, says this I is a good cookbook. I was surprised how much I liked it. Okay. Um, what's your next favorite of the ones that we, we uh, checked out? So, so my second favorite book is uh, Food Between Friends by Jesse Tyler Ferguson and Julie Tanous. They are two friends. They love to cook together. And the, I like the ideas in this book. Jesse really draws on his uh, New Mexico upbringing. So, you know, he has like South by Southwest spoon bread and sopapillas and pinto beans with cornbread, just great stuff. But, but there's a lot of really fun, fresh kind of California style recipes Roasted broccoli with tremula, coconut curry. Um, you know, it's got that California kind of global and vegetable forward approach to food. Mm -hmm. And it it reads like a professional. I'm sure they had help, but it reads very professional cookbook to me. Yeah, not stuffy. I don't mean that. Right. It's not off putting, but it 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 has that sense to it. Let's listen to Jerry, Jesse Tyler Ferguson last year on Chrissy Teigen. That's another celebrity. A uh, person who's writing cookbooks um, on her Cravings YouTube channel. So I'm from New Mexico, and so a lot of the recipes in here are from the, the, like the recipes that I grew up eating. Better Call Saul. From Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. And we're going to be making green chili chicken enchilada pie. So um, it's yeah. like a pot pie, but instead of a flaky crust, we're doing um, tortillas. 
Um, I just, to your point about ideas, um, some of the recipes you think you know, and then they really do a nice mix-up. So, And it's beautifully, yeah. I mean, the pictures, everything, easy to follow. I really enjoyed this cookbook. I have to say Yeah, that. Uh, yeah. It's inspi- it inspires me to try try the recipes. All right. Now, a cookbook that I had no idea was so popular, Danny Trejo. So people know him from Machete. Apparently, he has a series of taco shops and donut shops in L.A. And the name of the book is called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. And I found a bunch of stuff in here I would like to try and decided to try something very simple um, because that's what I could do with my time. And so he it's a cheesy bean dip, which sounds mm. um, OK. What's new about that? So it has refried beans in it, some cream cheese, um, some hot sauce, uh, some uh, jalapenos and jalapeno juice and a couple other things. So uh, Mexican blended cheeses. And I thought, what a great, uh, just a little another take on uh, away from the chili con queso that we're always getting when we think mm-hmm. tacos or dip. Uh, this would be great at my book club. It was pretty easy to make. It's warm. It was delicious. And you put a little cojito cheese on the top of it. Yeah. Mm, that sounds so <laughs> good. Yeah, this is a guy who really knows how mm. to cook. Like, you know, if he had a recipe, uh, if he had a writer, the writer was maybe just editing recipes, but this is a guy who, you know, this wasn't somebody writing recipes for mm. him. Um, and, you know, it, there's so many types of tacos. There's vegan tacos. There's he, there's mushroom asada. Mm. So if you don't eat meat, there's lots of options for you here. Um, and he really takes you through the whole process of here's how you do the meat first. And then here's all the tacos you can do with that meat. Um, I love, you know, his chicken tikka though. It's, it's, you know, it, it feels very LA, very like salad bowl of cultures all together. Um, this is an impressive book. It is. And again, on those top 10 or top 25 lists of best celebrity cookbooks, this one is a mainstay as well. It came out in 2020. Yeah, I think for for Thanksgiving, I definitely want to try his cotilla and chili mashed potatoes. Oh, doesn't that sound great? So good. (laughs) I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Amy Traverso of Yankee Magazine and GBH's Weekends with Yankee. We're diving into the vast world of celebrity cookbooks and deciding who has a future in this business. Your next pick. Okay, uh, I think I would go with the Tucci table, being Italian-American. I can't help it. Um, And... And, you know, after making that phenomenal mac and cheese that almost killed me, I made something that I wouldn't have normally made, but I had some farmer's market celery. I had a lot of it. Celery salad. Mm. It is so simple. It's three, but it feels it's, it's, he uses three types of vinegar, which I'm kind of rolling my eyes a tiny bit there. Cause really do you <laughs> okay. need to go out and buy, I happen to have them all. Um, it's red wine, vinegar, rice vinegar, and balsamic vinegar. I, you know, Mm. if you didn't have it, I would just use one or two, um, olive oil, salt, pepper, and celery. And you just stir it together. And it, the, the, um, the acidity of the vinegar really brings out the sweetness of the celery. I'm not, I've never been a celery lover, but this kind of made me think about a very common ingredient differently, which is what a good recipe can do. And, you know, he takes you through a, a lot of us, you know, have watched his, his, uh, Finding Italy show on CNN, um, and the the recipes are are really his his family's food. So his wife is British. There's a sausage roll recipe, but there's plenty of Italian food here, um, and you know great pasta dishes, 
pasta with fresh cherry tomatoes and basil, Nico's pasta with prosciutto, onions, peas, and pancetta. So it's, you know, it's like good family cooking from his kitchen. Yes. I should remind um, everybody and even you, this is National Cookbook Month, which is uh, makes this conversation even more fun um, because this is a, it's a time to celebrate excellent cookbooks. And we're doing a little take on a little different take on cookbooks. Um, let's listen to Stanley Tucci. He was making aglio. El, uh, well, OK, so it's uh, pasta and oil. Yeah. Aglio, olio. <laughs> yeah, there you go. This was Waterstone's YouTube channel. Um, this was a dish his father used to make on Friday nights. <laughs> I have some garlic here. Nice, big, fresh cloves of garlic. And I'm just going to slice it uh, rather thinly. You're just going to saute this in some extra virgin olive oil for very, very lightly. You don't want it to burn. Okay, so I have some really nice extra virgin olive oil over here, and I'm going to throw it into this ridiculously sized pan and just give it a little, a little shake, a little stir, a little toss. I'm going to get a hernia. It's a very heavy <laughs> pot pan. Just look how pretty that is. He can really cook, too. He can. He knows his stuff. Yes. And, yeah, hearing yes. him talk about his family and the kind of food they cook growing up, it's it's great. It is. And, um, all right, so here's somebody that, here's somebody's book who that's gotten a lot of attention and people were surprised by. This is Shaq's. Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. His, his book is called Shaq's Family Style Championship Recipes for Feeding Family and Friends. I love this cookbook. Yeah. Um, I, I'm ready to make many things from it. It's very friendly. He has two of the chefs that work with him, that feed him, in other words, write the recipes. So from my vantage point, I thought these recipes leaped off the page as not fancy, simple, easy to follow, but interesting. Yeah. There's idea quality here, too. And I, in particular, was really obsessed with the salads, which rarely, you know, you're really like the salad <laughs> chapter is what caught my eye. But listen to this shredded roasted citrus chicken and charred poblano kale and cabbage salad. I mean, so many yummy things in there, you know, power exactly. an athlete like Shaq. I just love it. Uh, Shaq, however, does not um, care for vegetables too much, which is what he told uh, Gail King in April of this year about his new cookbook. What's the main entree that you're serving? Baked chicken. Uh-huh. Broccoli. Mm. Maybe some macaroni. No. I have to say, guys, I don't notice a lot of vegetables up here. What is your thinking with that, Shaq? I don't eat a lot of vegetables, Gail. <laughs> you don't? No. Should you eat more vegetables? I don't have to. I'm, I'm pretty strong and pretty fit. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, and that's where he kind of lost me a little bit, because I really like vegetables, and I've... I do, yeah. too. <laughs> Uh, but that's not his favorite thing. He has them in the recipe, though. Yeah, though. I'm he in does. The book, and that's fine. Yeah. All right. Well, this one, this next one is just a close to my heart thing because Reese Witherspoon, I like her acting. Her cookbook is called Whiskey in a Teacup, and it's just a whole Southern thing. And Southern girl that I am, um, I relate it. Uh, the one recipe I went right to that I would love to make and plan to is hoe cakes. Mm -hmm. Let me be clear. That is spelled H-O-E. <laughs> as in the instrument, because <laughs> back in the day, uh, some of the enslaved people used to make the cakes on the back of a hoe, a uh, very hot uh, hoe instrument to, you know, as you're plowing fields or whatever. What do you think about whiskey in a teacup? I, I mean, it really is her, it's kind of her lifestyle. So the book has more than recipes. It's, you know, it's her thoughts on, on design and decor and, you know, how to 
like how to look pretty and uh, and and how to how, you know how to run a book club like there's a lot in there about kind of her general lifestyle all the things she's known for and you know i like how she's trying to rebrand southern womanhood in a more modern way as sort of you know we I always, I have to say that whenever Southern women are talking about kind of their beauty routine and how they dress, I, I'm so intimidated. Like I, I don't have time. I don't have real, a real deep interest in like oh, hot rollering either, my hair. Whatever. <laughs> so I, so I kind of feel, it always just makes me feel anxious. Like there's something I should be doing that I'm not doing, but she does it in such a nice breezy, friendly way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, looking good. is just a way of showing people that you care and okay. Yeah, sure. But I'm still not going to do it. <laughs> But hey, but yeah, the rest this woman really eats yummy. apparently because these are some hearty dishes in here. They're not all teacup, you know, even though that's the name of the, the book. It's it, true. You know? There's Yeah, she loves fried food. I also love that she's she's not afraid to like put a dessert recipe that she likes to serve people and it's whipped cream, it's cool whip and it's instant pudding and, you know, crumbled up chocolate cookies and it's delicious and everybody loves it. So why be, you know, why not put it in there? And again, um, sometimes this one shows up on best of, but it always shows up on the best selling cookbooks. It's fascinating. Um, so I think that uh, people like her, but also these recipes are good. Uh, so yeah. I think you would, anybody that would get them would enjoy it. Now, she has the summer squash casserole. Doesn't that sound I good? New, I have some new neighbors who moved yeah. in across the street. I'm going to make that and bring it over. That looks really good. I have to say, I was prepared to hate, um, somebody's I, i'm not a fan of snoop but you've got to convince me about the mac and cheese so we'll see but i just just taste the mac and cheese and make up your mind because i was a lot more suspicious until i tasted that mac all and right cheese. i will give it a i will give it a go but hey it maybe it was our selection i don't know amy but all of our selections here were good right there were no duds you know i mean would i go out and buy snoop's cookbook i would probably just find that mac and cheese recipe <laughs> online personally but if i was a real fan of his like this is him yeah. and it's fun. yeah yeah it's true so it might be a collector's item at some point because I, I can't imagine yeah. him writing two or three cookbooks so we have to think <laughs> about that as it will i know the guy works hard you know? i know <laughs> uh, so i don't know celebrity chefs maybe i'll have to worry about this a little bit because these are great. They're they're fun, but they actually work. So I'm excited about, you know, adding to my collection. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thanks for joining me as we. Uh, Thank you, Kelly. I love talking cookbooks. <laughs> me you. too. It's my favorite thing. Um, Amy Traverso is Under the Radar's food contributor, the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. And finally, we have another little something extra for you regular Under the Radar listeners. This summer, our former intern, Eli Chavez, took a field trip to the Boston Harbor to take a tour on the family-owned Cycle Boat Boston. There is certainly a party atmosphere to these cycle boats. Many use them for company outings, which have been especially great since the pandemic drove so many employees into remote work. What's been your favorite part about being on a cycle boat so far? Seeing all my coworkers. Um, some of these people I know by name, some by face, mainly on Slack when we're just messaging, but it's good to actually talk to them, learn about them. Also, bachelorettes are just a fun summer excursion. You can bring your own drinks and play your own music. Uh, our music selection, we will be listening to One Direction's live concert music. So it's a selection ranging from their Up All Night tour. I think there's a little bit of like Take Me Home in there. Um, it'll be a good time. 
Uh, I'm still waiting for when the 90s and early 2000s alternative rock comes on, but otherwise it's a perfect day. And it's a great way to see the city when it's 95 degrees out. Sandy Loomis and Aaron Gottlieb were on a company cycle boat trip when Eli caught up with them. Welcome to the cycle boat. I'm Matt, I'll be your captain. My wife is actually going to be assisting us. Um, um, our route today is we're going to start here in the Navy Yard, and then we're going to travel from here across the Mystic River at East Boston, go along the East Boston waterfront for a while, about to where the Nantucket Lightship Museum is, and then cross the main harbor to South Boston, through the seaport waterfront into Fort Point Channel, uh, where the Tea Party Ship Museum is, the downtown and north end waterfront, uh, and then into the mouth of the Charles River, and then back along the Navy Yard waterfront. We'll be back here in about an hour and a half. All right, pedal, guys. But don't worry, no one is working that hard. How long do you think you cycled today before you all move to the front of the boat? Probably the length of a city block. My name's Anad. I'm here for my company's 10th anniversary party. How was the cycling part of the being on the boat? It was nice. It's kind of hot out today, so didn't want to have to work too hard. Luckily, the boat doesn't seem to need us to cycle. How long do you think you were cycling before you stopped? Oh, like five minutes. Uh, nobody cycle. People cycle for five minutes and they drink for 85. <laughs> and they have fun and it's, it, they have a great time. The average is about five minutes. If you go more than five minutes, you're officially above average. It's about socializing and having fun and being able to get together. Cycleboat Boston started four years ago with Ed and Rosie Cardinelli partnering with other companies. But now they own Cycleboat Boston outright and are running to meet the high demand for tours and private parties. Adding another boat they named the Boston Patriot. This was supposed to be a, a part-time retirement job. And uh, it did start off that way the first year, but it was so, people had such a good reaction. We got a second boat uh, in 2020, and then a third boat in 2021. And now we've, you're, you're on our fourth boat that we just took delivery on a few weeks ago. And I noticed they all have unique names. How did you come up with the names for them? Well, the, fir well, the first cycle boat we got, we just call Cycle Boat One. Um, the second boat, um, because we operate out of the Boston Navy Yard, uh, we decided to name it Rosie the Riveter. It had a little bit to do with my wife's name being Rosie, but also it was uh, kind of to honor all of the, the strong women that built the ships here in the Navy Yard during World War II while the guys were off in Europe or, or the Pacific. Uh, and then uh, well, with the theme of, Bo with the Boston theme, we decided to name our third boat Sweet Caroline. Uh, and then the last boat, we decided to change gender because we didn't want to have all of our boats with female names, so we decided to call that Boston Patriot, but still keeping the, the Boston theme in, in, in mind. This was never meant to be a full-time gig, but Ed and Rosie fell in love, and now they're looking to expand even more. My favorite part of this business is actually getting out and doing the tours and seeing people enjoy themselves. Uh, I'm a little bit, um, little bit taken back with the administrative stuff we've been doing this year, but I'm working on finding, being able to pass that on to somebody else. It's so pleasant to be on a boat in the water, the views, in our passengers, they are amazing. 
so it's a place that uh, you know you come to work but it, you know because it's so pleasant that that's sometimes I say it's not a job it's a hobby and um, yeah do you ever get does it ever get old or I mean it's beautiful right now so I can't imagine I'll tell you I'm gonna be really sincere I have been doing this for four years this uh, view the Boston skyline never gets old never however not everyone is thrilled with the addition of the cycle boats that's one of the bigger things going on right now is uh, the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau is trying to make Boston into the next Nashville, which is, Nashville's really big for bachelorette parties. And they basically, they have bars, it's like a bicycle bar, and they just, I mean, you have these bachelorette parties and these very, very intoxicated women pedaling up and down um, the main street there. I forget the name of it. So they're trying, without the highly intoxicated women, they're trying to, <laughs> trying to make uh, Boston into something more like that. Boston isn't quite at that level yet, but if this summer is any measure, next year, Cycle Boat Boston will be the signature tour on the Boston Harbor. Fans are already planning to reserve their seats early because next summer is just a couple of months on the other side of winter. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Kelly Wessinger and engineered by Dave Goodman and Andrew Masawa. Our intern is Catherine Hurley. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.